0: You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today?
1: Well, our show today is about information security and I have this wonderful new book sitting right here with me. It's called Information Security and Privacy: A Practical Guide for Global Executives, Lawyers, and Technologists. And one of the key lead editor, the authors and the editor is Thomas J. Shaw, and he is a wonderful attorney coming to us all the way from Tokyo, Japan. And Tom, I have known Tom now for quite a while, and I have just been so excited to have him on my show. He also has another new book that we're going to talk about in a second. But he has so many different expertise. I'm going to just read these off, and he's going to explain to us in a few minutes what all these designations are, if you don't know what they all are. Thomas J. Shaw Esquire is an attorney at law. He's a CPA, which everybody knows, Certified Public Accountant. He's a C-R-I-S-C CRISC. A CIPP, which is the Certified Information Privacy Professional, a C-I-S-M, an ERM, a CFF, a C-I-S-A, a CGEIT, a C-C-S-K. So we're going to ask him about that in a few minutes. Anyway, I explained that he is based in Tokyo, Japan. We're going to talk a little bit about his extreme experiences with that. And he works with organizations in Asia and globally on information privacy law. And this includes security, e-discovery, Internet law, cloud computing, which he just wrote a brand new book about, social networking, intellectual property, e-commerce, international transactional law, just so many exciting things. And he writes extensively on information in Internet law and technology and on Asia Pacific Law. He's the editor of the American Bar Association's Information Security and Privacy News, which he conned me into writing an article for, which I was thrilled to do. And he also is the um he is the editor of the EDDE journal. He is author of a brand new legal technology book called Cloud Computing for Lawyers and Executives, a Global Approach. That's coming out right away. And he was the lead author and editor of the recently published legal technology book, which I have in front of me, which is wonderful, called Information, Security, and Privacy, a Practical Guide for Global Executives, Lawyers, and Technologists. He has a vast career. His career matches his many licenses and certifications in law, financial audits, risk, privacy information, Security records, forensics, information systems, audit, cloud computing, and so much more. And he has taught it at universities and corporations on leadership and technology in the United States and Asia. And I just am so excited to be able to talk with you, Tom. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for the introduction, Mari. That was uh that was wonderful.
1: Well, listen, you gotta tell us what some of these things are. So I know a CPA. I know a CIPP because I'm one. What is a CISM?
2: CISM is an information security manager. It means you have proficiency in, uh, in dealing with information security.
1: Okay, then you're a CRISC. Well, that one
2: actually, the, the name actually works. It's a C risk, so it has a lot to do with with risk and information security controls.
1: Oh, okay, and ERM
2: uh ERM is a uh, enterprise uh, records manager.
1: Okay. The CFF
2: uh CFF is a certified financial forensics. Oh. Uh, being able to deal with financial statement forensics.
1: Okay. A CISA
2: <laughs> that that's a certified information systems auditor being able to audit uh information systems.
1: Okay. A CGEIT <laughs>
2: Uh, that that's do with governance of, of information technology, enterprise information technology.
1: Okay, a CCSK.
2: CCSK is a cloud computing uh, security uh, knowledge uh, certification. So it means you understand cloud computing and the, all the security aspects involved in it.
1: Tom, how did you get to be such a techie and get to know, a uh, be all these incredibly expert people all in one one person?
2: Well, to me, it's all the same thing. It's just uh, sitting in different chairs around the same table. Uh, the, the table, if you want to think of it as, as being information, there's a lot of ways to look at it and use it, um, be it from law, be it from audit, be it from IT, security, privacy. It's all around information and just different seats at that table. So I've just moved around and sat in the different seats around the table during my, my long career in, uh, in information.
1: So, Tom, how did you get started in that, though? What was the thing that led you into information security and privacy?
2: Well, you know, I, I kind of started out uh, years ago in, uh, in audit, um, and from there you're dealing with information, financial information. Uh, that led in, into information uh, technology and all the different uh, aspects of that, which include information security, privacy, and law itself. So I've just gone along this continuum to me, uh, always looking back that we're dealing with information, either consumer's information, organization's information, and we're trying to decide, you know, if if you look at information, it has a lifetime, and in that lifetime, it's created, it's collected, it's used, it's protected, it's backed up, it's audited, and then it's finally deleted. So I've kind of gone through the whole lifetime of of information and, and sat at all those different chairs along that cycle.
1: Well, speaking about sitting in different chairs, I know I have to ask you this because I know you and I have talked about this before. You are living in Japan, and Japan has experienced such a, a a turmoil with the earthquakes, the myriad earthquakes that and the aftershocks and the tsunami and how has that been for you
2: uh it's been It's been a very trying time uh, to to be here um, we uh, have had uh, to live through many things that most people don't get to experience. Uh, it wasn't a one-day event for us. Uh, we have our, our 311 now, maybe similar to the, the 9-11 experience happened yeah. in the U.S. Yes. And on 311, on March 11th here, we had the earthquake and tsunami, which eventually killed over 20,000 people. Mm. But then we've had the, the after-effects uh, of the, the radiation mm. exposure, which has been going on for several months. That's been very difficult because uh, radiation is something that uh, is unseen, and the effects uh, come long, over, over a long period of time. And so no one knows exactly the effects of what happened. Um, but today life is slowly getting back to normal here. I live in Tokyo, which is about um, 150 miles south of where this all took place. So uh, we're spared some of the effects of it. But there's still other things. There's still shortages in stores, there's still power shortages, there's still things going on. The business world is slowly coming back to life here and the social life is slowly getting back. But it's not the same as it was before. Mm-hmm. It'll take many years.
1: And I know you know, a lot of people can't um can't even get cars here, you know, the Japanese cars here and, and parts. So that's been a real ordeal for friends that wanted to get Hondas and and, you know, the the people who work you know trying to sell those cars they that's been a challenge for them here as well so yeah
2: it's it's uh it's not only there it's also here uh, for example uh, the the school my daughter goes to is building a new a new facility and they're not able to finish the construction as planned uh for the next school year because the elevator factory where they source the elevators from in japan was destroyed uh, mm. in, in the uh, tsunami so it's affecting everybody here both locally and globally
1: but I really honor the Japanese people—the the fortitude and the the po- even through all this, they seem to be really positive, don't they? I mean, that's what it looks like from from our end—that they're not looting, they're, they're they're patient, they're you know taking their turn, they're standing in line, they're not acting crazy. I mean, is that just my impression, or is that really what's happening?
2: Uh, Japanese have some uh, some traditions of uh, of, of gaman, which uh, basically means Patience, and uh, and then of uh, Gambaaru, which means we'll try our best, and so they've been very patient through this whole thing, um, and now they're trying their best to uh, to make things better. Uh, if you think about it, it's it's quite a potentially cataclysmic thing. We there's fifty to sixty million people who live in this region, and if things had gotten worse, an evacuation on that scale would, would have been uh, unprecedented uh, in human history. So the fact that everyone stuck it out and really um, are actually contributing to going forward is really amazing. And I think you'll see uh, in the future years, Japan really snap back. Yes. They
1: say what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, and um, it's just really impressive. And I honor you, too. You're staying there with your family, and that's, that was a challenge as well.
2: Uh, uh, yes, yeah, it very much was. And uh, it was one of those things, especially when the nuclear plants were exploding, in uh, the first week or so after, it was uh, an hourly uh, check on on, on uh, deciding uh, what what the best choice was for your family: uh, st- stay here or leave. Many families uh, left, uh, some never to return uh, because of, of the situation here. But uh, this is our home. It's been it's been good to us. So we, uh, and my wife's Japanese, so we uh, we stayed and uh, we're still here. So, happy to be here.
1: And you got that fortitude, and you got that patience, and and boy, I'll tell you, that's that's wonderful. And I guess you have to have that patience even when you work with information security and privacy, and I just want everyone who's listening to know that you're listening to my good friend, uh, Thomas J. Shaw, who is an, an attorney, and he was the lead uh, author and editor on this book that I have right in front of me, Information Security and Privacy, A Practical Guide for Global Executives. And he is also the author of a brand new book that's coming out. And that book is called Cloud Computing for Lawyers and Executives, A Global Approach. And boy, he, he has every designation behind him. It just takes forever to even say all of the different expertise that he has. So we're thrilled that you're with us. Tom, so let's let's kind of go back into privacy and and help us understand the relationship between The Concept of Information Security and Privacy.
2: Well, Mari, it's interesting that you you bring that up. The the information security book that uh, was just published recently had a section on it that dealt with that very question. That's something I wanted to answer, is uh, what what is the relationship between these these two uh, different parts of of information law? If I had to say it in a single sentence, I'd have to say that, that privacy is what everybody wants for their personal and sensitive information and information security is the mechanism that allows us to actually achieve that So, there's many laws on privacy and in those privacy laws around the world there's always an information security requirement to protect it but privacy itself is is a lot more than that Uh, these privacy laws typically have different principles Uh, the right of of notice, um, how is my how is my data that you've collected from me going to be used uh, a right of consent that I want to be able to uh, know and, and consent to however you want to use my information that may be different than what you told me when you collected it uh, or to transfer to somebody else uh, the right to go in and, and update my information if it's not uh, currently correct. Um, and any additional rights about sensitive information. If I have health information, I might won't want more rights of protection and, and understanding of what happens to sensitive information. So, so privacy has many, many aspects to it, and information security provides some of those protections in privacy.
1: Right. And there's that old adage, you can have, uh, you can have security without privacy, but you can't have privacy without security. Exactly. So, you know, you can, you can lock up the stuff. Um, but it might not, you, you know, you might have collected too much or more than you needed. <laughs> so there's that issue. But if you are, if you're looking for privacy and you don't protect it and you don't lock it up from, from people who shouldn't have access, then, you know, you got a problem. So you have to really, they really go together hand in hand, don't they?
2: Well, and, and as we've seen <clears throat> um, and and so many recent headlines. I mean, a week or a month doesn't go by where there's not a big uh, data breach announcement. Um, you know, this year has involved many, uh, several Japanese uh, corporations. Uh, you know, Honda was involved in a data breach. Uh, Sony was involved in a, in a big data breach. Oh, huge one. And yeah, just, just huge uh, number of potentially affected uh, consumers. And so, you know, that's the, the privacy is a People wanted their information to to be private and their rights of privacy, and information security is supposed to protect that for them
1: right so this this great book, which i I really think has fantastic articles in it how, how do you see this four book, uh, this book um addressing a need for increased education and awareness regarding information privacy and security issues
2: um well there's there's several things in, in, in messages that I'm trying to get across in in, in raising awareness in this. And a lot of it are in in the, in the cover in the title itself. Um, it's it's a it's a practical guide, so it's something that's very useful to help people actually do their job. Now, who am I talking to? I'm talking to global executive lawyers and technologists. Well, that's kind of a strange mix uh, of people. Um, so. What I'm trying to do is raise the awareness in all these different types of groups. So, um, technology people who have to do their their job in protecting information, uh, lawyers who have to understand laws around the world and translate those into actions for businesses, and and then the executives themselves. And the executives have to actually own information security. If it doesn't come from the top and it's not a a commitment that's constantly renewed by the organization, then information security doesn't work. It can't be something we just pass down but we don't do as the leaders. We as the leaders have to do this as well. So, One of the things I did in in the book is I created um, summaries for the global executives. What global executives need to know is in front of every chapter. And it takes the highlights and the things that if a global executive isn't going to actually read the whole book, and they might not because there's a lot of technical and legal stuff in the book, they can at least read to some reason every chapter in the front of every chapter and take away these points. So there's trying to be something for, for each person. There's another point in, in the title, and that's that this is global. And what we're seeing uh, more and more in businesses and even individuals uh, as they're dealing with global corporations as their data goes around the world, is they have to have some understanding that, hey, this isn't just an American issue anymore, and there's more things to think about um, out there because it is global. So I was trying to get all these ideas across and raise awareness that there is um, more people involved and there is more of a perspective for people to take um, than just, what's in their own backyard. When you have electronic information, it can go anywhere. And suddenly you have to know about more things than just what's right in front of you.
1: And, you know, when you talk about you're you're trying to help uh, global executives, well, we can all be global executives because, you know, you could be sitting even in your kitchen and you have a small business, but you're selling overseas, so you're a global executive. So, it, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a large company like we, what we think of these big corporations for you to know, especially if you're going to be transporting sensitive data,
2: right? Exactly. As soon as you're on the Internet and you're, you're doing e-commerce of some kind, you potentially have a global audience and your consumers are everywhere. Well, those consumers may be protected by their own laws from wherever they are, which is somewhere different than you. You want to drive more sales. You know, you're happy to sell to anybody anywhere when you have your, your business uh, and you'll ship your products anywhere they are. So you have to have some understanding about what, what the implications of what you do in selling to people across the world. So every, pretty much every, every business has this potential. Um, there, there's another aspect, and we talk more about the cloud computing book, that even would affect companies who don't sell uh, uh, on a way that would be outside their local market. There's other potential impacts as well.
1: Right, right. I have to ask you about uh, Tokyo and, and basically Japan. How is privacy viewed differently or the same as we view it here? I mean, do they have a privacy commissioner? We don't even have a privacy commissioner. H- how is it different?
2: Well, in, you know, I've, I've written a number of articles on, on global privacy and in Chris's book and looked at privacy laws around the world. Um, There's different views based on different cultures of of what privacy means. And um, whereas in in Japan they do have a a, uh, data protection law, a comprehensive data protection law, Um, it's different than the law in in South Korea, in Australia, in the U.S., and in Europe. They're all all different because they're all coming out of the cultural aspects of where information, uh, protection of information and privacy, so, Several like we have,
1: have, yeah, like we have this patchwork of of privacy laws, and and I think we're trying to do better each day. And, and the Federal Trade Commission is is focusing on this, and Congress and all that stuff. But I just wondered, like we have, like opt out is really the big thing here. Is that what it's like in Japan that you opt out, or is it opt in, or is there consent first? What what's that like?
2: Well, a typical example here is um, you you can officially. Um, go ahead and uh, object to certain third parties getting your information, uh, but you have to op- opt into actually doing that, um, and that's kind of a very specific way here. Um, in in other countries, for example, in in China, in China has no single comprehensive privacy law there because in China the the view of, of information and privacy is totally different. It may not be something that is of concern in in that type of society. Whereas if you go to, to Europe, and their historical perspective, and their, their cultural reasons, they have a very specific reason and need to want to have such stringent privacy protections. So you'll find that in every country as you go around the world, what is considered acceptable in those countries changes. There are a number of countries who have privacy protections explicitly stated in their constitutions, whereas in many, many countries don't. and It's an add-on statute if it's there. So it's really, it's really a patchwork of things around the world that you have to kind of get to know. And in, the, in this book and in all my books, I try to introduce those differences to people, find a, the common points. And as time goes on, the, these influences out of Europe and, and out of uh, different uh, international guidelines are starting to have an effect, I won't say standardized, but to make the privacy laws in countries more similar, so there's a common body of things, and then there's all these local or regional differences with laws across the world.
1: It would make sense because we have this global marketplace, and if each country has to act differently with another country, which kind of what what they have to do right now, it it is really challenging to to have the economy works well if if those privacy laws are going to be interfering. With us, you know, getting the proper information that we need to process whatever it is that we need to process to have these people as our customers. So it makes sense to me to kind of have at least agreements like there are some agreements, aren't there, with regard to uh, various countries that like the United States and the European Union have certain agreements with regard to cross, uh, you know, cross sending information.
2: Yeah, the U.S. and the, and the, and the E.U. have a, a safe harbor agreement because the E.U.'s privacy laws are more strict um, than those in the U.S. So uh, for the E.U. to allow data to be transferred, the, uh, the organizations have to, to meet certain requirements. And that's becoming a typical thing uh, to protect local citizens across the world is countries are saying, if we're going to transfer our data out, which is very common in, in outsourcing and in, in cloud computing and, and in normal business now, is that the data about individuals, uh, consumers, and companies may be transferred outside a country where it was collected. Well, I want protection to know that the country it's transferred to has as stringent requirements about protection as the country where it was collected. And so, a lot of countries in their in their laws now are are saying you can't transfer it to a country who has less rigorous standards than we do in our country. Um, and that gives consumers the you know the confidence that even the data goes from con- the country of collection to another country, it's still being protected.
1: Right. Now, so let's kind of switch a little bit to cloud computing because that's your new book, Cloud Computing for Lawyers and Executives, a Global Approach by Tom Shaw. And tell us, um, you know, For all businesses, the idea of cloud computing is very appealing, and people don't realize it that they're on the cloud. If you use Facebook, you're on the cloud, right? If any of the social networking, you're you're basically in the cloud. I know my backup is in the cloud. So people don't realize that they already are doing cloud computing, right? What are some of the risks out there for us?
2: Well, you know, People are either in the cloud already, and they probably are, as as you mentioned, Facebook, uh, Gmail, Hotmail, um, Twitter. I mean, you're already in the cloud, probably as an individual. As an organization, you may or may not be in the cloud, but you're probably going to be there soon. Um, and if you're not, if you're not there right now, there's a lot of things you should consider about it. I mean, the the benefits of cloud computing are are significant. And in my this new book, it it uh, starts off by by showing what the benefits are and the fact that IT is actually moving to something that's going to be a utility, very similar to how you get electricity or how you get water. It's going to be plug-in and go, and here's your bill every month, and that's it. And that's the direction it's going in. So there's a lot of benefits. Uh, but the, at the same time, there are a lot of risks. There's legal risks. There's technology risks. There's business risks, litigation risk, compliance risks that are going out on for businesses out there as they go into the cloud. But businesses are, are, are going to need to... to First, think about what do they want to put into the cloud, and that's things like any commodity kind of processing, any IT work or programs that you have that doesn't differentiate your business. It's something everybody does. Your payroll processing, your accounting, your inventory ordering, all these things that may not differentiate what you do between you and your customers are things you could put into the cloud. Uh, any kind of seasonal spikes you might have, program testing, all these things are things that you could easily put into the cloud. Um, one, but knowing what you put in the cloud is, is the first thing um, because you are understanding the risk of what's there. You don't want to put your trade secrets into the cloud. That would probably be a little, little too risky at this, this time. Um, but then you need to be able to assess the data. You need to assess yourself. saying, am I ready to go out and put information into the cloud? And this new book, gives you the ability to assess your own business to say, am I ready? What are the steps I have to go through to be ready to outsource my information to the cloud? And then you have to choose a cloud service provider. Let me and ask you, you have-
1: Wait, one, one question before you go into the cloud service provider. If you, like I back up, right? But I have a lot of things encrypted. Am, am I safe if I encrypt before it goes into the cloud?
2: Well, I- I- encryption has, has many states. There's in- encryption in, in transmission. There's encryption in storage
1: yeah, and encryption in, in use. Yeah.
2: And you, you have to be able to understand all of those things. So if you're, if you're, if you're encrypting your data and then uploading your data, is your tra- number one, is your transmission encrypted? How strong is your encryption key? Who, who holds the keys? How do you protect them yeah. when, the data, when the data is used? Is it still encrypted? There's a lot of points along in use when it's not encrypted. When it's being used by an application, it's no longer encrypted. So, what's your protection at that point? So purely saying my data is encrypted is a good start that's a really good start it's a great idea Uh, but there's more to it than that
1: i gotta get your book you have to send me your new book and we'll have to talk about that too that one's so new that i don't have it but yeah i i have been scared of the cloud actually let's talk about some of the other risks so so the risk of being in the cloud is right now it's it's not secure enough is that what you're saying
2: well there's there's A lot of risk and and, um, like I said, there's you know legal and business and, and technology and compliance. You know you you have to, you know, information security and privacy is probably the number one issue people think about. Um, and, of course, you want to make sure that you're able to comply with all the privacy laws and you're able to protect all of the information, not only from the outside, but from, from the inside as well. So a lot of these same ideas about information security and privacy apply to the cloud, and they apply not only to the the cloud service providers that you're wanting to work with, but to the organization who's giving the information to them. But the thing about the cloud is, is that it's a little bit different is that you're – by nature, you're able to get resources as you need them. So if you need more processing power, if you need more storage, that can be provided to you basically seamlessly and basically instantaneously. That's the promise of the cloud. Just like you could get more power from your wall outlet and more water if you needed it at your home. But when you do that, the, your, your current cloud service provider may call on other cloud service providers to provide those additional resources. Mm-hmm. And when they do that, those cloud service providers may be located in other countries they may not be someone you have an agreement with well how are you protected against the actions of those cloud service providers and the data in under those laws in those countries so there's a risk that your data and it's called the data mobility principle your data may move without you really knowing about it because that's part of the service it shouldn't matter where it is to you it's being stored. It's it's under these rules that you set up when you agree to the agreement with the cloud service provider.
1: Wow! So it, now
2: it's it's a new thing. There's a there's a new set of risks that have to be understood and accepted.
1: Right. Well, we are actually out of time so we're gonna i have to get your book cloud computing for lawyers and executives a global approach and we're going to have to have you back on to tell us how we can deal with all these risks with cloud computing you are wonderful thomas shaw thank you so much for joining us all the way from japan you and we will have you back again
2: thank you very much mario it was a pleasure
1: and you stay safe with your family over there okay
2: I will, and we will. Thank you very much.
1: Okay. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Write us emails about what's important to you. Download podcasts, listen to archived interviews, and stay private.
2: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.